you have some videos that are really just bananas. Like there's the video of the truffle drop that has 14.8 million views, mm -hmm. 483,000 likes. Did any opportunities end up coming from it or was it like a nice boost in metrics and that's it at the end of the day? That's a great question. And I think something that a lot of filmmakers should take more seriously, the exposure you can get from just sharing your work, like and how you actually did it is like a lot more valuable than just showing the shot itself. I do a lot of different things now, but at the very beginning, it was very cool. It was like, holy cow, like people are actually seeing this. Probably once it got over like 20,000 or so, brands started kind of peaking up more, but there were not a lot of brand deals that I ever did because they don't want to pay money, which is kind of the problem. The bigger thing that came from that, I think, was meeting tons of different filmmakers and tons of different directors and producers and agencies. That was a way bigger thing for me because that just led to more of the work I was already doing. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, now they know I exist as a person, which I think is one of the biggest obstacles when you first start out is nobody knows you exist. Hey guys, I'm Arya. And I'm Christina. And we are your hosts at the Film Up Podcast, where we explore the stories of accomplished filmmakers and creatives and their road to success. Each podcast is dedicated to a nonprofit of our guest choosing. The goal here is for the Film Up Podcast to help filmmakers and help the world at the same time. We believe you can do both. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Chris Vandersheff. What up? Yo, yo. For those of you who don't know Chris, he is a cinematographer, director, and editor whose clients include Mountain Dew, Adidas, MTV, Ferrari, Disney, and more. His content reaches tens of millions of accounts and counting. He specializes in high-speed motion control and gimbal camera systems, which has led him to shoot some of the most epic slow-mo videos you'll ever see on social media. Chris is also a big supporter of Water.org, a global nonprofit organization working to bring water and sanitation to the world. So he is dedicating this episode to their organization. You can learn more by going to Water.org. And as always, all the details are shared in the description of this episode. Chris, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm stoked. Oh, it's so awesome to have you, man. And as you know, we have tried to get this on the calendar, what, like six times? So <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess yeah. seven's the lucky number, as they say. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. we're so excited to have you here. And one of the ways that we like to start this off is before we get into some of the present things that you're up to and things you're doing now, we like to start off from the beginning and learn about what got you into filmmaking in the first place. What led you to become a creator? Did you always know you wanted to do this or did it just happen somewhere along the way randomly? Yeah, uh, that's a great question because it actually was incredibly random. Filmmaking was not really anything I saw myself doing when I was younger. At one point, uh, about my teenage years, uh, my grandfather had a camcorder. And this was, this was way back in the day. So this was like a high eight, you know, digital camcorder. And I played with that for, I don't know, maybe like a couple of weeks shooting all sorts of weird stuff. We would do skits and fake commercials and, you know, funny stuff and walk around town and just make montage videos like me and my friends. I didn't think anything of it. It was just kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I set it down and didn't look at it again for a couple of years. And then I was living in this really tiny town on the coast of Oregon and they had a TV station. It was called a low power TV station. 
And my friend called me up and he said, Hey, we, uh, we're doing this like live music call in show with bands and all this kind of stuff. And our dude didn't show up like their second camera operator. And he's like, you want to come down? Like, I know you know how to use a camera. You want to just like shoot some B roll. And I was like, Oh, cool. We have a TV station. Yeah. I'll, I'll come show up. So I just went down there and basically hung out for, I don't know, 45 minutes or something shooting B roll and. It's kind of funny, like looking way back, I wish I had the footage because it was like very lame, like compared to what we all shoot today. Um, but it was just really cool, like slow fades, like 80s dramatic, you know, superimposed, you know, one person over another with an instrument. It's just really funny. And uh, the owner happened to be there. And he like after the show was like, hey, like, nice to meet you. Like, you ever thought about making this career? And I was like, what do you mean? You're going to pay me to do this? Like, just hang out with my friends and like shoot stuff with cameras and like he's like yeah yeah yeah, it's totally a thing and I was like oh sounds great he's like when can you start I was like cool I'll start tomorrow so I quit my job at like the normal grocery store and that was it so man well you know a lot of the the creators we talk to and their inception stories they'll bring up you know there was just like a camcorder laying around and me (laughs) and my friends made these dumb videos I have to ask do those videos still exist or are they locked away never to be seen by anybody no they're not um they I think exist somewhere at one point in time um my friends like had them and I don't know what happened to them they like circulated around and got lost and I really wish I had them because I would 100% post them. <laughs> they are so lame and so cheesy, and I love it. Um, it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, we did just really goofy stuff. Like, uh, we had a TV show called Show Off where, you know, kind of like Jackass, but without hurting ourselves. Where we, you know, we did weird stuff where we would have our friends, like, go mow people's lawns, and then Marvin Gaye would start playing, and they'd, like, take their shirts off, and everybody's like, what are you doing? Like, but nobody cared. It was, like, pre-social media, so... Nobody thought it was funny except for us. So why it was does it hilarious. seem like that's the inception story of every like young male <laughs> filmmaker in the U.S.? Yeah, I just feel yeah. like you know it's kind of like Jackass, like you know something like because we were yeah. interviewing Frankie LaPena, and mm-hmm. he's the guy with the green screen doing all the Zoom videos, and he's he's hilarious. But um, we were talking about his inception story, and he pretty much said the same exact thing. And yeah. I'm like, if I were to tell you mine, it would be something along the same lines <laughs> as that. <laughs> and and so I wanted to ask you, you know, film makers as you go through your professional career you end up becoming like a jack of all trades it's just like the nature of the industry what would you most self-identify as in terms of filmmaking cinematographer editor colorist you know there's a whole list that is such a hard question these days because it's changed so much like when i first started you know i was just extra hands at that little tv station and then like all these people, like they were have they were struggling. So they like people quit and they like tried to reduce my hours to like 10 hours a month or something. I was like, I'm not quitting. I actually like this stuff. And so I ended up doing like tons of weird jobs I never thought I would do. And sort of like, you know, throughout the progression of my career, it's changed quite a bit until now, especially with all the slow-mo stuff. I think if I had to label myself, it would probably be something like high speed, you know, tabletop cinematographer, you know, Mm. slash director, something like that, because that's really my favorite thing to do is specialty things with super slow motion phantom cameras and robot arms and weird, intricate, you know, specialty work. Mm -hmm. But like all of us, or at least a lot of us, you know, work is work and freelance is, you know, you work for a lot of different agencies and people, you know, and some people are used to working with you just as a camera op or just as a director or just as a DP or just as whatever. 
So, you know, like with arm car stuff, you know, I don't do that as much anymore, but all my good friends, you know, do tons of it. So it's like, maybe I'll be an arm tech for a day, or maybe I'll just be an AC pulling focus and then I'll go back to the robot stuff. So it definitely varies a lot, but mm -hmm. I think I'm, you know, would love to keep moving more momentum towards like the cinematographer director and agency type stuff. That's really fun. Yeah. And we're definitely going to jump into some of these slow-mo videos and, you know, it's not so simple what you do. There's kind of a buildup to get to the craft that you're at. It's pretty specialized. There's a lot of really expensive equipment. There's a lot of technicalities to executing it. And of course, once you have the process down, you know, it becomes more like clockwork because you know what you're doing. But before we, get into that I was kind of curious did you have any formal education in filmmaking you ever do film school or did you just jump right into the career side of it yeah so yes and no <laughs> I started out you know doing all that stuff like at the tv station learning from a couple people and then I learned about freelance and I was like oh cool this sounds fun like more jobs on the side so then I would you know I moved quite a bit throughout my career and I would just find production crews or agencies or grip truck owners. And I would just be like, Hey, you seem cool. Like I'll do whatever you want. Like just teach me something. And so like, I definitely learned the majority of what I learned just hands-on experience. Like I learned really well trying things and failing and trying until I get them right. Like that's definitely the way I learn the best. Mm -hmm. But at one point, this is probably after probably at least eight or nine years of like working. I was like, I should go to film school. Cause that's like, that's what you do. That's the next step. And so one of my buddies was going to a film school and I was like, oh yeah, I'll just go do it. So I just like drove over there and took an admissions test or whatever, like an ACT test or whatever. And they let me in. It was wow. really weird. I thought it was like harder <laughs> than that, but I just showed up and then I really, I have very mixed feelings about it. Like I really liked school and the atmosphere and of like being around all the different people, but I had like issues with all the debt. Like I wasn't a big fan of having to pay all this money for something that I was already getting paid to do. And there was all these strange like rules because I had just started in the school. They were like, you know, you can't use this equipment. And I was like, but I have that camera like at my house. Like, can't I just use it? I already know how to use it. They're like, oh no, because you haven't passed this course. I'm like, yeah, but I already know how to use it. I own it. And there, you know, there's a lot of weird things like that, that I was not like really vibing with. And mostly though, it was just about the money. I was like, well, I think I'm going to save myself a whole bunch of debt and just keep getting paid to do stuff instead of have somebody tell me how to do what I'm already doing. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a, that's like an age old argument of in really any career or profession, you know, is it worth it? A lot of these things could be learned elsewhere and online. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes people will fall back on the community sense of it. Like I met this person who got me this job, who did this thing and that made it all worth it because it kind of broke me in. Do you feel that you had any story like that where people that you connected with during that educational process did pay dividends later on? Yeah, I think so. So that's a definitely interesting argument for that because I've heard that a lot. And my biggest thing with that was most of the people, like the adjunct professors and like the grip truck owners and the companies that would sort of come alongside with the university, you know, they would just teach classes or do seminars. And I would always talk to them and I would say like, hey, so what's the deal? Should I keep doing this or should I quit and just keep working? And they all said the same thing. They all said like, you know no one's ever going to ask you to see what your degree is on a film set. They're just going to, you know, either like you or know that you can do the work or get a referral from somebody. And that was basically it. So that was a big part of why, you know, besides the whole not 
wanting to pay the debt was just realizing that everybody I knew that actually worked in film was saying the same thing. Like you don't need to go to school to actually work in film. You can just start working and get your experience that way. But I did definitely, I mean, I met people, you know, because I went to that school. So I wouldn't necessarily have met those same exact people if I didn't go to that school for a year, but I would have kept meeting other people. So it's kind of hard to say like how much that really impacted, you know, where I ended up. I don't think that had a huge bearing on like where I am now, because most of everything I've done has pretty much nothing to do with school, Mm -hmm. um, except for like one friendship with a guy that I still talk to who's a super awesome dude, but that hasn't really led to any work at all outside of when I lived in his town with him locally. So I think it's probably different for everybody and it's hard to answer. And I think it's definitely everybody's personal choice on whether they find value in it or not. I think nowadays too, like there's so many more ways to learn. When I started all this stuff, like YouTube was barely even a thing. There was hardly any educational resources and social media wasn't a thing. You know, it was like you knew who you knew and that's how you got most of your work. And now it's like you could post a video and get 10 million views. And all these people from around the world could contact you. You could just DM someone on Instagram, really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You could just like, hey, I've done that. I've been like, hey, what's up? Like, let's do something. Okay, cool. And like next week we're shooting. It's like, yeah. that was never a thing. That's crazy. That's totally insane. Yeah. So, I mean, I have so many technical questions about the filmmaking aspect. But first, <laughs> I have to ask about the tiny hands. And so for those of you, for those of you who don't know, Chris posts these amazing videos with cameras that have, and I also have tiny hands laid all nice. over. Nice. I've got, I got a new one with a microphone in it. Oh my God. So I can start I, doing TikTok I just content. Have normal size hands. Sorry, uh, yeah. <laughs> but where did that come from? Okay. It's a funny story. People ask me that a lot, especially in DMs. They're like, I don't get it. Um, it was super random out of nowhere. So my wife bought me these little tiny baby hands from Amazon just as like a funny gift. She was like, oh, these are dumb. Like, you'll think these are funny. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are so creepy. And so I brought them with me just on like a, a film shoot. And I was using some lenses from Tokina. They like let me borrow some so I could get some footage with them. And, you know, I'm an ambassador for them. And so like sometimes I shoot things and get them BTS and stuff. So um, I was like, oh, this will be funny. They'll get a kick out of this. So I like put on the little baby hand and I was like, you know, <laughs> touching the lens. And I was like, oh, like, I'll send this to them right now. And then I like I ended up posting it. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, it's so gross. Or, oh, my gosh, it's so funny. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, this is really interesting. People either love it or hate it, but it gets a pretty good response. Like, so I was like, I'll just do this every once in a while. And then it just, it became a thing. And people like, they ask for it all the time or they absolutely hate it. And either way, I think it's pretty hilarious because, you know, it's just something goofy to do. That was really it. There's Well, I, I have to say, because for those of you who don't know Tina, like ever since I've known her, there was like some SNL skit that had the baby hands in it. Yes. And for yes. years, for years, Tina has been like hiding those little baby hands in uh, random places. You open up the fridge, you'll see it in there. I'll oh, like, yeah. you know, go to brush my teeth and it'll somehow have ended up like next That's to amazing. my toothpaste. And so mm -hmm. it's, she has the baby hands and then she has the screaming goat. Like in her oh. car, she has like this little goat thing. And whenever she's like, all right, you ready to go? I'll be like, yeah. And then she'll click the goat button and this thing will just scream, which I won't do oh right now. Anyways, it. it's, it's been an ongoing thing. I might be the weirdest person. <laughs> I love it. In the best that's way. Awesome. In the best way. But sorry, yeah. I cut you off, Tina. No, that's a, that's a great skit, though. 
I it, remember that one. It's one of my, I, I laugh so hard every time I see it. I send the gifts of those to everyone all the time, randomly. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love it. That's like they're popping the bubbles, right? With the little baby yeah. hand too. But yeah. Yeah. So gross. It's so funny. All right. Well, back to the filmmaking part of things. So you do a lot of slow-mo. So I'm curious, how do you approach shooting in slow-mo differently than regular frame rates? Yeah. Um, it is definitely very different and it kind of really depends on the subject matter and what you're specifically doing because most of the time slow motion, like ultra high speed, super slow-mo stuff is really for like a moment in time. It's not like you're going to shoot this 27 minute long, crazy, you know, shot on like a techno crane or a dolly. And you're, it's like, you have a very short window of anything to capture. So Part of that has a lot to do with like the velocity of the subject or the subject matter itself. Like if you're going to blow something up, if you're going to shoot something with a gun, if you're going to do like a car crash, if you're going to do like fluid dynamics, like paint and water, you know, splashes, you know, interesting things like somebody kicking a ball and you want to see like, you know, like a Nike type thing and you want to see like grass and water and things fly off of a soccer ball. Like it really depends on how you approach it exactly. But majority of it with phantom cameras specifically is you have a like a very small window phantom cameras operate like on a buffer system so they have an internal ssd so a normal camera right that you're familiar with you just hit record and you just roll until your media is done or until you are done doing the take a phantom camera like if you want to shoot like on a flex 4k at a thousand frames a second you've got like a 5.5 second window depending on the size of your internal hard drive you've got this window of time. So you put it into buffer mode and it's basically looping over and over and over and, you know, kind of like a DVR. So it writes over itself once it gets past the five seconds. So it's just going endlessly until you trigger it. And then it captures that window of time at a thousand frames a second. So then you play it back at 24 and you see what you got and all that. So it's, mm -hmm. it's just a very different way of thinking instead of just like, I'm just going to start recording and then we'll do whatever we want. And then when I'm done, I'll, I'll stop recording. Gotcha. And you know, some people, whenever we post, um, there's this particular behind the scenes photo or content that we'll always share. And it's usually the mm. helicopter that's going yep. to land and you just like the propellers look like they're not moving and they're floating. Mm -hmm. And then everyone always argues in the comments, is that frame rate? No, that's shutter speed. And oh, yeah. are, are you ever messing around with the shutter speed and how you're, you're approaching the content as well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, so when you're shooting on phantom stuff, you're typically shooting 180 uh, shutter speed. It's degrees, actually. On phantom cameras, we do degrees instead of, like, you know, normal shutter speed. But that's, like, what you would typically shoot with any camera is 180-degree shutter angle. But if you want, you know, more light, you can shoot 360, but then you get, you know, a lot more motion blur. So if you want it crispier, you can go to something else. Like, you could do, you know, 90 degrees. It really just kind of depends on subject matter and how how crispy you want it or how small of an amount of uh, motion blur that you want. But that's the main reason why uh, a lot of it has to do with frames per second, because a lot of things are surprisingly not that slow when you shoot them even at a thousand frames a second, like ballistics. You, you can't see a bullet at a thousand frames a second. It's still like zipping yeah. through the impact looks pretty slow sometimes, but like, you know, it's very different. Somebody doing a backflip and, you know, shooting a rifle. Yeah. So. 
Well, you know, when you watch these things and you you see the behind the scenes content that you post, people don't really think about the real world experience that someone might be having in front of the camera. When you see it on the camera, it's almost like it just seems inherent. It's just like, oh, that's what they made. Let's watch the next video. But you're actually doing some like some pretty, I don't know, risky things in the sense of like the the video of the guy smashing the coffee pot with the sledgehammer. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, glasses flying coffee is flying is that getting on your equipment does that guy get cut by the glass have you ever had like a disaster story when trying to do capture any of these i mean of course you prepare yourself but Mm -hmm. i don't know sometimes things slip through the cracks i'm trying to think um nothing like crazy has ever happened um, even on like, you know, big shoots. I mean, we always obviously take safety very seriously. Sometimes when we're just messing around with our friends, you know, we goof around, but we're never usually doing anything that's like super dangerous that, you know, I think we've just all been around it for so long. We kind of inherently know, like, that's a dumb idea. Don't do that. Like, don't point a gun at your friend. Like, that's very stupid. Mm. So there hasn't really been anything like totally crazy that happens. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, Things are like when you're breaking things like that, a lot of times it's like safety glass and other like sugar glass and things like that. So even if it looks a little more dramatic, it might not be. Those are more for like real shoots. I mean, sometimes for smash labs, it's like a fun thing that I do on the side where we just smash stuff, like go down, find (laughs) old things and just like, you know, hit them with a sledgehammer or something. And it just looks cool. It's really just something fun for other cinematographers and friends to do. Uh, because slow-mo just kind of looks cool there's just a fun aspect of it as well even if it's not work related you know it's just kind of a cool thing to do is that how you got into it in the first place because now you have clients that are specifically hiring you for this but how did it even start (laughs) yeah so um like how did slow-mo start or how did smash lab start uh both are 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 they are they separate stories or are they they are somewhat separate uh slow-mo started because this was after I, I don't know i was working for like 12 years or something one of my good friends that i was like freelancing with on the side him and his buddy they rented a slow-mo camera because they were they were thinking of doing like a whole bunch of stock footage with with high speed stuff because not a lot of people had access to those cameras and so i you know went to work with them on set and it was a fire breather shoot so you know literally just like a professional fire breather that they hired to literally just blow fireballs for like a couple hours and it was like this is totally insane but when you watch the the playback you know of a thousand frames a second versus just what you see with your eyes it's just mesmerizing it's totally insane like the the flames like, like the ripple and it's just it's crazy and so that was sort of like the moment that got me hooked it was like the next step of all this other stuff is really cool but this just looks crazy. Like it, it, you, you can't even see it with your eyes. So it's sort of like, okay, I want to specialize in this somehow. And that sort of started off a long journey of getting to the point where I could buy my own camera and then just starting to shoot tons of random stuff and put it on social media. So that was sort of how Smash Lab started. I was, okay, finally have a camera that I can do whatever I want with, whenever I want with. Let's just break stuff. What's easy to do <laughs> that we have access to? Like, cool, we'll just go down to the thrift store and buy a bunch of vases and things for like, you know, a couple bucks. And then we'll just go in the studio and just, you know, find different ways to smash them and see what it looks like and see what looks cool and what frame rates look cool. And then that led to like the frames per second studies, which those are funny because people really don't understand those if they're gamers. And so they get really upset. And it's interesting to watch the, the comments section. Like they really go off. What do you mean by that? What's some of the controversy that will come up? 
Well, I think I should probably start doing like reading people's comments because they get pretty <laughs> heated. Um, but gamers seem to really like a lot of the Twitch kids and stuff seem to not understand that like the playback speed, your frame rate that you're watching like on your monitor is not the same thing as what you recorded it as with a high speed camera. So it's like I try to explain like this was shot on a phantom camera at a thousand frames a second and this is playing back at 24 frames a second. So it looks incredibly slow. And they just said, no, that's wrong. There's literally no difference. You're crazy. Like all these videos look the same. I'm like, they literally don't. If you're like watching them, you can see like, this is slow. This is fast. Like, but that doesn't mean the same thing to them. You know, they just see it all as like refresh rate or playback speed or monitor speed, whatever. And they just like, they fight with each other like crazy, which is kind of funny actually, because it just boosts engagement on everybody's posts. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know do your thing because they're coming at it from the gaming mind and they're just not necessarily thinking about the technical aspect of the camera Mm. and it it, so that's unbelievable how you're just there you're smashing stuff you got inspired by this slow-mo fire breather guy you put it all together and then who was like the first client where you're like man wait i can get paid for this this is this is actually something i can do yeah that's a that's a tough one um i'm trying to think of like the first cool slow-mo client has been too many now. Um, but it probably would have been, I mean, we did a lot of cool stuff. Me and my buddy, Daniel, we still work together all the time, but it would probably be like one of the Korea jobs. I did a, a job in South Korea with a bunch of parkour guys. I mean, this, I can't say that that was like the first job that was like, wow, this is really cool to get paid to do slow-mo. That was just a crazy cool job because it was, dudes jumping over buildings like you know they're a parkour team so if you've ever seen those videos on like youtube and stuff you know they literally go rooftop to rooftop and they jump off of crazy things and they do like just stuff that would make you sick to your stomach to watch like in real life i think that's slowed down a little bit because i think a a lot of people have been getting hurt doing it you know they hang from the buildings but there's been like Mm -hmm. some disaster stories yeah um it's terrifying oh yeah They, they do crazy stuff like you know, these guys are like a, a sponsored pro team. That's literally all they do with their life. It's It was terrifying to film it. Um, it was a really cool experience, but it's like, I don't understand how people can do that and not be afraid of it. Like, yeah. it's pretty wild. Tina's been convinced she's been doing parkour for years, but really all go. she does is jump off a wall, like kick the wall and go. say parkour at the same time. Parkour, parkour. <laughs> it's like the there sidewalk curb. <laughs> there you go. It's like the office. I love it. So you've obviously shot so much slow-mo. Do you have a particular shot that is your favorite? No, not really. I I get asked that a lot. And I think that just changes like every month. Um, There's been a lot of fun stuff that I've been shooting for the last couple of months that I haven't been able to show anybody, which is kind of the nature of working on, you know, NDA projects. And like, you know, when you, the larger the clients are like, you know, usually you can't release anything for a really long time, which is kind of super irritating in one regard because you have all this fun stuff you really want to show everybody and you want to show all the cool bts and it's like you can't like you can't show it at all so probably some of those we did some cool stuff with pepsi really excited to show everybody when that comes out um but i think it would be if i had to pick maybe like a category of shots i think it would be anything with robots and either liquids or fire just because they look different every time. They're really unique. So even if you do like simple pours for like beer commercials or something, every time you do one, it's slightly different. So you kind of never really know what you're going to get until you do the playback. Yeah, there was there was one shot that you did. It was like a leaf and you poured this droplet oh, of yeah. water. Was that like a really difficult 
shot to get because obviously yes. the timing. Yeah, that was that's actually pretty old now, but it still gets played a lot all over the place and it's a macro shot. So that one was like one of the first tests we did and we didn't have a rig for it. We had a robot arm, obviously, but we didn't have like a, like a pneumatic or servo motor like dropper type rig. So we literally were just like drip, drip, drip on a leaf and then try to time the robot to get it at the right, at the right spot, which we eventually got. Took a while. I don't remember how long, but probably took us at least like 10 tries and or more. And it was very satisfying once it happened because like, you know, the timing happens and you're like, yeah, everybody freaks out. Like <laughs> that happens a lot on slow-mo sets, which is also like a very satisfying thing is when all the clients crowd around the monitor and they go watch the playback and they're like, oh, we got it. Like freak out. We got yeah, it. it's really fun. Yeah, it's very cool. It's like kind of takes you back to like, you know, when you first started and you're like, everybody's pumped and excited for all of it. So it's a really cool thing. That's awesome. And I mean, we've talked a lot about shooting slow-mo and high speed, but when it comes to editing, what are like the major editing challenges when it comes to editing that kind of footage? Um, probably just having like a, a beefy enough computer. You know, it's sort of like, it's getting a little more normalized now because, you know, all the red cameras and all these big formats are now shooting like 8K footage and it's all raw and it's like very intense to like chew through with a SSD or something. It's not like way back in the day when all the stuff was just like small, file sizes were crazy small. It was really easy. Now it's like, you know, even Phantom cameras have their own like proprietary format. It's called like Cine Raw. So it's like, it's just a big file. And when you try to play that back on a timeline and start doing a bunch of things to it, it just, you know, really bogs down your computer. So that's, that's probably the most difficult part of it. Um, is just making sure you have a machine that can handle a whole lot of footage, but it's not really very different, especially now all the software is so advanced. Like you can literally just throw the raw files into DaVinci and like throw transcodes out to whatever software you want, like really easily. Like a long time ago, the process was terrible. Um, you had to tether everything via like a Cat5 cable to PCC, which is called um, Phantom Control, Phantom Capture Control. I don't even remember mm -hmm. what it's called anymore. Um, but that was like the way you would do it. And it was terrible. Like, you know, it's just a very old, slow process. And everybody on film sets, like it's a good software for certain things. like you know, the technical side and all sorts of fancy things you want to do. But film sets, everybody's like, let's go, let's go, let's go get it done faster. We need to get out of here. We don't want to have you wait like two hours to like dump all your footage. We need to go. Like we only have this, you know, stage or the studio for like the next 30 minutes. And then we're in overtime. So like download it fast. Like, so it's, it's just different now. It's just running gun as fast as you can sometimes, which is nice that everything now works a lot better. Are you one of the filmmakers that jumped on the, the Mac studio once it came out with the, the M1 ultra trip and the 20 core CPU, the whole, you know, the whole thing? I didn't, I actually didn't. Um, my wife has one. Oh, she um, and she loves it. Yeah, she loves it. Um, I am still running like, like a five-year-old iMac. Yeah. Like I'm still just using that and pretty much everything I do, I just transcode out of DaVinci to like ProRes and then it doesn't even matter. Like I've got like a rated SSD system and I can just pretty much cut whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
I don't need it to be like that fast. So I got to do that because when I edit the podcast, my computer yeah. sounds like it's about to take off. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh my God. Totally. But I also don't like laptops for editing. Um, they drive me crazy because of the size. And I, I'm like old school. I like a big keyboard and I use um, like these gaming controllers oh, cool. for shortcut keys because I can literally have all my hotkeys assigned and I can just like do this and do everything I want without like, I just like mouse, boom, boom, oh. boom, boom. And I'm cutting like 10 times faster. Um, that was actually something I learned a long time ago from the editor. What's his name? Is it Edward Allen Bell? I can't remember if that's right. But he was like the guy that cut like Hunger Games and stuff and a bunch of other films. He had like, you know, some cool blog posts about like using gaming keypads to make custom shortcuts and you don't even have to move your hand. And I tried it and it was like a game changer. It was yeah. really awesome. I, Tina definitely has to look into some of this stuff because <laughs> her, her computer literally sounds like a helicopter. Like the yeah. song Ground Control to Major oh, Tom man. starts playing in the background <laughs> when she starts Ground Control to Major That's Tom. Awesome. <laughs> but, um, you know, that is really funny that you said that because people will use gaming controllers for like mm-hmm. a lot of different things. Uh, and especially when, you know, with like the drones and, and things of that nature, they set up the controllers to look almost oh, like yeah. game controllers, which is kind of funky. Um, mm-hmm. And that actually kind of leads me to the question of all this equipment that you guys have. Do you buy? Do you rent based off of the production you're doing? I mean, this stuff isn't cheap. Robot arms and all these rigs. I mean, you yeah. can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on this stuff. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, that's one of the biggest drawback. Maybe not drawbacks, but that's one of the most difficult entry points to like the phantom world is the cost. Mm-hmm. So everything is just very expensive. Phantom cameras are ridiculously expensive. The media for the cameras is expensive. Um, all the things you need for the camera are expensive. So that can be really difficult, you know, in the inception, if you wanted to like, Hey, I want to go shoot phantom camera like tomorrow, I would definitely advise anybody wanting to do that to rent. Cause it's, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars for stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it's not cheap. There's just no cheap option. They are coming out with a lot of new cameras, you know, that are trying to compete. You know, you've got the Wave from FreeFly, you've got the Kronos, and those are like alternatives, but they're still not the same quality as Phantom. So it's it's difficult, you know, when you're working for a big studio, they, they always want the best camera that exists or whatever. So they're always going to use that most of the time. We, we own some of it and rent some of it. So it kind of depends, like um, between me and Daniel, one of my business partners, we have three Phantom cameras that are all owned. And wow. everything outside of that, we end up renting. But honestly, we don't rent that much unless it's like a like a ballistics type program where you really need super, super high frame rates because the Flex 4K and the Veo 4K are still like the most widely used cinema versions of the Phantom camera because they haven't really made a new version of that camera for at least six years or maybe more. Like they just keep sticking with that one because it's a great camera. You know, we're just kind of waiting, like, what's what's the next one? You know, what are they going to do? I know um, some filmmakers, they'll rent their equipment out when it's not in use. Do you guys do that? Or you're just like, you know, we, we just have our clients. We use it for our clients and mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah, we, we definitely all rent our gear out. It depends on the gear. Like, some things we don't rent out without ourselves, you know, like a Phantom camera, because they're just so expensive. Not even that people couldn't figure out how to use them. It's more so what happens if you break it, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't just go 
order a new one. You can't like go to B and H and just oh, I need a new Phantom camera tomorrow. Like yeah. it's not going to happen. Like you have to actually get it like from Phantom or Able Cine, and it's a process. It's not like very simple, and it's it's a lot of money. But that's that's the bigger issue with the specialty stuff is like what are you going to do if you break it? Are you going to try to get some really cool shot like skydiving and you accidentally drop it? <laughs> like you know you never know because. <laughs> things get crazy well yeah and the reason i ask these technical questions for two reasons it's one the up-and-coming filmmakers who are interested in getting into this stuff and there's a lot of tips and tricks you know people look at this and they just think man they just have the stuff and they just you know shoot the thing and it's done Mm -hmm. but you know the reality is is it's kind of a hustle you buy the equipment you rent it out you rent some equipment it depends on the shoe and your approach to it is one of Mm -hmm. the reasons that you find your success and have scalable growth so that's one of the reasons i ask but it also so it brings up that age old situation that comes up for filmmakers where when you're not in the film industry, you always have the person like, Hey, Chris, can you just get like a slow-mo shot of like my daughter running up to her birthday? And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, like uh, pro- like two hours, probably $2,500. And they'd be mm-hmm. like, what's wrong with you? I'll never pay that amount of money or whatever mm-hmm. the, the figure is. And it's just like, it's, it's just such a funny problem to have when people who are not filmmakers have no idea how expensive and how technical and how challenging it is to capture like that five second shot so that was mm-hmm. kind of a long preamble to the question of do you still run into that with clients where people who are unfamiliar with the filmmaking space like you tell them what the quote is and i'm sure you guys are super methodical and how you do your pricing but they don't necessarily get it and they just blow up at whatever the fee might be oh yeah all the time probably every day every week <laughs> it's, it's a great conversation to have too because like it's a very important part of filmmaking like as a career that a lot of people don't talk about because making money as a filmmaker and filmmaking itself are not necessarily synonymous they're they're just you can be the world's best filmmaker and not have any idea how to make money you could be not a great filmmaker and be really good at making money you know they're just not necessarily the same thing and they don't go hand in hand and a lot of people don't teach that at like film schools they teach you like a lot of theory and like you know how to get this shot or like why someone did this thing but they don't always teach you how are you going to like live? You know, how are you going to survive and pay your bills as a filmmaker? So yes, that question, I get hit up all the time. Like, Hey, can you, um, uh, especially with like TikTok and Instagram now that it's like a bigger social thing, like brands reach out and they're like, Oh, like you want to shoot a cool thing for our, our like product. Like, we want you to collab with us and be an ambassador. And like, you know, like we'll send <laughs> we'll give you, you a hat. Like, yeah. It's like a lot of like, we'll give you a, an Amazon gift card for five bucks, you know, or like, they'll be like, we want you to film our flowers. We'll send you a bouquet of flowers or like, yeah. you know, Hey, can you get cool shots of my drink? Like I'll send you like a drink. And I'm like, what? like, I'm like, you can't. Like, it sounds great if I had all the time in the world and, like, was just, like, ridiculously wealthy and didn't have to, like, ever pay bills. I'd be <laughs> probably more than happy to just be like, all right, cool, let's just blow something up. But, you know, it's it's the same thing. You know, everybody's got to eat. Everybody's got to pay their bills. And it's difficult to explain to people, especially in the creative field, when they have no concept of, like, equipment costs and power consumption and, you know, just the wear and tear on gear or the potential that you could try to do a really cool shot and dump a bunch of water on your camera and fry your camera. Like there's a lot of things that other people aren't thinking about at all. They're just thinking like, well, I would just do it for a hundred bucks. Like you probably wouldn't if you really knew what it took, but 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's okay for you to think that way. <laughs> have you have you ever done anything with the bolt arm? I know we're having Cole Wessler oh, yeah. um conjoin the podcast. Oh, Cole's awesome. and he, yeah, he's so cool. And you know, mm-hmm. he's the king of the bolt arm yeah. slim. I mean yeah. that guy's like becoming world famous with it. Yeah. Um yeah, it's so cool. And, and so have you guys done uh, it sounds like you said yeah. So what have been some of the projects that you've used the bolt arm on and what has your experience been with it? Do you like using it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I haven't side note, I haven't actually worked with Cole himself. Um, we talk on Instagram and stuff, uh, but I have worked with the bolt arm quite a few times. I've worked with probably three, four different types of robots. Um, I have a robot from a different company called Motorized Precision, um, and there's there's quite a few robot companies now. I don't even think I could name them all, but I have worked with the bolt robot quite a few times. Um, one of the videos was, let's see, like a six-second recipe video with a friend, David Ma, who's a really cool director out of New York. Mm-hmm. And he loves doing the high speed stuff too. Oh, probably the biggest actual job with the Bolt robot that we did together, actually, me and David, was um, like a Lay's potato chip campaign. And I've put that on social media a ton just because it's like really fun BTS to watch. There's like crazy rigs, there's like, you know, chips exploding and potatoes exploding and like, you know, basters going around on like a homemade, like, like a, a rigger version of like a, whatever you call that, like a grill, you know, just where it's like literally a grill top and underneath it's like a propane canister and it's like shooting fire up and it's like, Whoa, this is crazy. You know? So <laughs> that stuff is really, really cool. Um, and that's probably the funnest job that I've done with the bolt robot where I wasn't operating the robot. I was just operating the phantom, um, on that job. So that, isn't always necessarily like the same person doing that job on the high-speed robot stuff. It depends on which system you're using and kind of more so like the budget or the scope of the project. Cause it, that one is like, there was like 15 people on set where other times like the company's like, we can only have four people. Like how many of you can do like six jobs, you know? <laughs> so it, like, it kind of just depends on which job it is, who's doing what part of it. But that one, I was specifically phantom operator in a really cool dude was running the bolt and it was really cool. I mean, robots are sweet, man. Like you can't move. You really can't move a phantom camera fast enough. Most shots with your hand, you know, like if you're shooting a thousand frames a second, you have to have a camera go from like here to like, you know, whatever position you want three feet away in like a half second. It's like very difficult and it's not repeatable. Obviously if you're just like a human, like, you know, moving stuff, it's, really really hard i'm calling it now i think we need to set up a partnership between chris and nasa for the mars rover and (laughs) i think we need to get a phantom 4k on that bad boy i don't know how we would get the content but i feel like you should be the leader (laughs) in running it let's do it i'm down (laughs) that lays uh commercial was so cool i think we definitely shared that on film up like five times Mm -hmm. like one of my favorite it's just fun it's a really cool one and and most people never really think about the complexity of that one and you know it's not just about being able to do a really cool shot because you can do a lot of stuff by hand you know by just throwing stuff or tossing things or chopping things up but if you want it done repeatedly like over and over again the same exact every way especially like in that specific job there's some like motion control shots where they do like a fire pass and then a a non-fire pass and then like a you know, line of whatever that stuff was like, you know, combustible material and then just the bag and then you comp it all together. If that's not motion control, if they're not the same, every single shot, that's an editing nightmare. Like the compositing on that just turns into a lot of money. What do you mean? Just fix it in post. Yeah, fix it all in post. It's easy. It's all easy. (laughs) 
Um, but I, I wanted to circle back to the negotiation aspect of things. I know a lot of filmmakers mm. who are starting out right now listen to the podcast. And what advice would you give them if they're just starting to send quotes and they're getting those mm. reactions? How do you kind of handle those situations? That's definitely different depending on what aspect you are in filmmaking, which was something I kind of wanted to touch on anyway earlier. Like the landscape of filmmakers now is it's crazy vast. It's like so different than it was like 20 years ago. That's about when I started. Like there's so many avenues to make money in film now. It's not just about like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, work for 60 years and try to be some massive cinematographer in Hollywood for all the features. Like that's that's amazing. You know, if you want to do that, go for it. But that's not your only option. Like you can do podcasts, you can do YouTubes, you can do Instagrams, you could do, you know, TikToks, you could make review videos, you can make gas station video screen content. Like you can pretty much do anything you want. So that sort of conversation changes depending on what kind of content you're creating. It's very different to navigate like a, a collaboration proposal with a brand, you know, for like social media content versus working with an agency on like a Lay's commercial. And whether you have like your own producer, whether you're working as a employee in an agency versus just a freelancer by yourself. So it's a, it's a more complicated conversation than just like a simple answer, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I think that specifically talking about freelancers, like if you're just some person who's like, I want to get into filmmaking some sort of way, and you maybe have your own gear, or you can borrow your own gear from a friend or whatever. I think negotiating rates is just something that you kind of learn by doing it over and over again. It's a, a decent place to start. If you sort of like are, say you're in an area like LA or wherever, you can kind of start asking questions like, hey, I'm going to be a PA on this job. Like, what do you get paid to be a PA? Like ask 20 people, ask 100 people, ask everybody you know, and their grandma, you know, like how much money do you get paid for this? And then you can sort of like condense it into, okay, on average, it's probably about this much and then start from there. And then you kind of just have to learn how to negotiate because producers are a lot of times going to try to get you to do it cheaper anyway, even if you know that most people get paid. 250 bucks for that job you know they might say well we're we're just the budget's super tight that's a very common phrase like well don't have the scope for this one don't have the budget like no money in this like can you do it for 100 bucks and you kind of have to learn to say no pretty much you have to understand your own worth and your own value at some point and it's fine to like do a lot of free work and it's fine to do a lot of low budget work when you start and i mean even forever honestly if you want if it's a cool project but like at some point you'll get more work by saying no than you will by just saying yes to every opportunity that comes around. Cause a lot of people will take advantage of you if you just, if you have no idea. So you kind of have to just say, no, sorry, this is like, you know, what everybody's getting paid 200 bucks. I'm not going to do it for 50 bucks. So when you set up your rates, I mean, obviously we're not going to get into the actual specifics, but a general approach is, you know, you have your piece of a, equipment. How do you necessarily bill out that invoice? Will you take your equipment, you'll take the cost of it over two years. So divide it by 24 months and then build in a little margin on top of it just for, you know, the various other expenses. And then you'll kind of do that across the board for like equipment, then time. And then like, because depending on your level of success, you don't necessarily need to approach that invoice. You're like, I'm the guy mm -hmm. that does this thing. I can just do the flat rate at what it is. Do you take totally. a technical approach to the invoice or are you just like so cemented in your role in this industry that you just kind of 
throw a number out there that feels right for you. Yeah, it it's definitely different for every job. So I wouldn't say that I'm like, you know, this super cool person that just gets to say, this is how much I charge no matter what. Ha ha. Like, I that doesn't happen. Are, like, well, just... I appreciate it. But <laughs> it definitely is never a conversation with producers <laughs> like agencies. They usually have an idea of what they want to pay. And, and hopefully you're around that price. But I think the way like me and a lot of people I know invoice for certain things, it really depends on our role. So like if we're a crew member, you know, like if I'm going to be a DP or an AC or just somebody on set, that's just one part of that. There's typically an understanding of at least a, you know, semi-normal day rate that most people would charge for that. And that's usually where it falls. Like it might be a little bit lower or higher depending on you know, if they're okay with paying that or depending on if you use like not every DP charges the same amount. Mm -hmm. But if it's like more of a, this is my job that I'm bringing in as like the agency and I'm hiring a bunch of other people, there's definitely a much more technical approach. Like you're saying, like there's a lot of cost factors involved. There's a lot of expendables and there's a lot of things that you're trying to plan for because a lot of times things go wrong and you things you don't anticipate ending up happening like pretty much every shoot you know you oh shoot like we actually need this or i need another person or i need to like send somebody out to do this or this costs more than it costed last time because of inflation or because of whatever it was hard to get and i had to pay extra shipping to get it here on time like there's a lot of things that you have to factor in for like that type of work when you're sort of facilitating the job more so than just being like an independent crew position so i think that definitely has an effect on it but a lot of times when it's just like a crew position there's sort of like a general consensus of like how much a dp or somebody gets paid like in this area and you can kind of start off there and it's always better to start off higher and come back down mm -hmm. than to start low because you think no one's going to want to pay you something that's a bad place to start because you can't negotiate up you can negotiate down but mm -hmm. you don't want to undersell yourself so kind of back to that conversation a minute ago of like get an idea of what, you know, people are getting paid. Like if you're, you know, if you're just going to go shoot like a rad montage video and you kind of know, or even an event video and you know, people are paying like 800 bucks a day to do that, mm -hmm. then start at a thousand and just, they can say no, they can say, well, we usually pay 800 and they go, okay, like I'll do it for eight. And then at least you actually got eight when you wanted it instead of going like, well, I, would you at least pay me 400? And then you're like, nah, I'm bummed because I didn't get the money I wanted. So it's, it's certainly an art form. And I, it sounds like it's something that you'll definitely get comfortable, more comfortable with over time after you've gone through yeah. a few experiences and, and beta tested it. And it kind of leads me to this thought about just the clients you work with and the clients you got in the first place. And I'm kind of going to tie it to social media for a second, <laughs> because you know, you, you do have an, a very impressive social media and you have some videos that are really just bananas. Like there's the video of the truffle drop that has 14.8 million views, 483,000 mm -hmm. likes. You got this photo with the slow-mo shot of the horse riding oh, that yeah. has another 5 million views and hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of likes. And so um, I guess I kind of had a question of one, just what it was like when those videos started to blow up. Did you get any gratification from it? And two, did any opportunities end up coming from it? Or was it nice, like a nice boost in metrics? And that's, that's it at the end of the day. Totally. Uh, that's a great question. And I think something that a lot of filmmakers should take more seriously. Like that's just a personal opinion for me. Um, when everything first started like blowing up, this was years ago when Instagram was sort of like, 
I don't know, an easier algorithm. Maybe that's not the right terminology, but back when people weren't doing BTS split videos, um, there was maybe a couple of people that I ever saw ever. Um, Matt Alonzo is actually one of the first people I ever saw do like split BTS type content with all his music videos. He's a super rad dude. Um, and I was like, oh, I should do that for like slow-mo because like, I don't see any videos of anybody showing like weird slow-mo stuff, you know, BTS wise. And so I did, I had like no followers at all. I think I had like, I don't even know if I had a thousand followers. I didn't have a lot. And um, I was like, I'll just try something different. And it just like kind of blew up. And then all the accounts, all the film accounts started reposting and like everybody was reposting like all over the place. And I was like, wow, there's something to this, like the exposure you can get from just sharing your work, like, and how you actually did it is like a lot more valuable than just showing the shot itself. I do a lot of different things now, but at the very beginning, it was very cool. It was like, holy cow, like people are actually seeing this. Cause in the, if you just use Instagram, like I used to use Instagram, like a lot of people did like, I don't look what I'm drinking my latte or, you know, like oh, here's my pizza, you know? And it's like, it's, it's fun, but like, it's like you and your two friends and you're like, Oh, that's cool. And like, that's it. Like nobody cares. But once you start like adding more value to other people and like, especially like showing people how to do things, then it's like way more gratifying, not just because you like can get a lot of views sometimes, but it's like the DMs and the messages where people are like, oh, that's so cool. I, now I know how to do that. Like, can you help me with this? And then there's a lot of like behind the scenes, like, you know, typing messages to people and calling people. I called so many random people like from DMs. They're just like, hey, uh, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, give me your number. Like, I don't want to type like a that 32 paragraph like response. And then I just call them and they're like, what? Why'd you call me? Like weird. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. So those were like things that were coming from some of these videos that were blowing oh, up. Yeah. Did you ever get any like brand deals or anyone that oh, you yeah. could write? Okay. Yeah, that was definitely a thing. Like in the beginning, it was, it was pretty much mostly just like videos kind of going viral or whatever you want to call it. And like getting a lot more exposure and the account was growing. And then once it got, probably once it got over like 20,000 or so, like, brands started kind of peaking up more but there were not a lot of brand deals that i ever did because they don't want to pay money which is kind of the problem so when you have like you know really expensive gear um uh, it's not just free to use it you know like because mm -hmm. it still costs power and like a lot of stuff you have to have somebody help you and i don't want to just ask all my friends to just like can you come hang out with me for free for like a day and maybe I can pay you 50 bucks. And, you know, that's cool. If we all do like a project we can do together, but when it's like a sponsored thing, it's, you know, not as much fun. So, but the bigger thing that came from that, I think was the exposure of agencies and other filmmakers. That was like a much bigger thing for me than brand deals. Cause I still, I don't do a lot of brand deals. I'm just not super hyped on it all the time, but like meeting tons of different filmmakers and tons of different directors and producers and agencies, that was a way bigger thing for me because that just led to more of the work I was already doing. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, now they know I exist as a person, which I think is one of the biggest obstacles when you first start out is nobody knows you exist. You know, and people kind of think, or at least I did, and a lot of people I know when I first started out, like, okay, I'm done with school or okay, I've got a camera. Like, I'm going to start an Instagram account or I'm going to get a domain and I'm going to post my first video or my one, two, one YouTube video, and then everybody's going to hire me. And it's like, it doesn't really happen because even like algorithmically, like two people see it, you know, especially when you don't have like hundreds of thousands of people looking at your stuff, you get like a handful of people that actually see your content. 
and they still don't know you exist. So like just the quantity, like having to put out all the videos, like, you know, I listened to the D-Rock one that you guys did and like, you know, how they put out like 150 or 200 pieces of content a day. That's Wild. bonkers. It's amazing. Like, yeah. you know, like how cool is that? And it's like just everything you put out gives you that much more of a chance of somebody seeing it and potentially hiring you. And I think that's the way people should look at it versus like, oh, I have to do all this free posting all the time. This sucks. Like, it's like, yeah, but you're just sitting there anyway. Mm. Like, why don't you just give yourself more of an opportunity to get hired than just complain about it? So on, on that personal note, was there like this, oh shit moment, 14.8 million people watched this video or were you just like, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Cool. Love it. But moving on. Yeah. That one is more recent. Um, I've had some really big ones like that on TikTok as well. And definitely nowadays it's not, not as much of a surprise. Like it's definitely really cool, but it's not like, oh, I got like 15 million views. Like everything's going to change. Like it's just kind of more of the same. It's like, sweet, this one did really good. How can I do another one that's going to do as well? Yeah. You know, and like what one am I doing that sucks that I shouldn't do that anymore. But I think the engagement for me is much more satisfying than the views. Cause I can, I mean, you can have videos go off and there's like no engagement on them, which is super mm -hmm. weird, you know? I was going to say, once upon a time, you got 15 million views, you'd be called on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, what are those? I don't know yeah. if anyone knows that reference. Yeah. It was, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's a different landscape. It's, it's very different now. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, even just TikTok, like you could have a video hit like 20 million and then your next one gets like mm -hmm. 20 views. It's the algorithm oh, is, yeah. is insane. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah. So before we wrap up, we like to do this segment called Rapid Fire, where we shoot over Ooh, a couple sweet. fun <laughs> questions. So the first question is, what is the most outrageous request you've received from a client or a talent? Oh, that's a tough one. Probably people trying to call me um, from Instagram wanting to live with me, <laughs> stuff like that. That's really weird. It's, a, it's, it's an awkward thing. It's like uh, usually people from other countries and I'm not sure if it's like a, a cultural thing, like difference or something, but people will literally try to call me sometimes and just be like, I want to come live with you and learn filmmaking. And I'm like, no, like, these are like the crazy <laughs> DMs that you're getting. Yeah, oh, these yeah. are just random strangers, like, and usually, like, I don't know how many of them are real people or, like, spam bots or whatever, but it's, like, some <laughs> random account, like, user 246397, you know, and <laughs> some of them actually try to call you and some of them just text you weird stuff. And it's, like, I don't know, I just, I don't pay attention to DMs as much as I used to because, you know, it, it gets weird. And then when you're working with clients, have you had any like outrageous requests from those clients or anything that they need that's like very peculiar? I wouldn't say outrageous. It's usually more of the same, like, you know, how can we do that more extreme, you know, which is just kind of cool, you know, like, let's blow it up. I mean, that that one can be kind of outrageous sometimes like we have to be like well let's maybe not do that or like if you have a lot of electronics and when you're doing like big power like three-phase power and stuff you're running a lot of cables on the ground and things like that and sometimes people want to have a request like let's make a rain machine and like you know let's dump water everywhere it's like mm, let's not kill everyone you know with electricity like that doesn't happen a lot of times because most people 
understand that. But sometimes someone L- has listen, a crazy Rihanna, request. We're not doing this <laughs> yeah. for your umbrella music video. Okay? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely some interesting requests sometimes. So a producer's worst nightmare. Um, no. <laughs> last question. What is the motto that you live by? Oh, geez. That's hard. I should have had a cool comeback for that, like a, a rad response. Um, I don't know. I don't really have a super cool motto. I think um, you could do something like live fast, film slow, you know, <laughs> something like that. That works. I love that. <laughs> well, Chris, man, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. It's been really, really awesome. And one of the ways that we like to end out the segment is just ask, what are you working on right now? What are some of the cool projects? Uh, is there anyone in our community that should reach out to you that can help out in any way? Um, and just what's going on in your life? Yeah. Um, there's a couple things going on right now. I would say first, anybody can reach out anytime. I don't have any issues like answering questions and talking a lot. Sometimes it's hard to get to all the questions if people ask like a whole bunch of questions. And I try, but if it like if I don't respond in like 10 minutes, don't take it personally. <laughs> but ask me anything, especially about slow-mo and robots and cars and blowing stuff up. That's fun <laughs> to talk about. Like, I love it. You're going to get a lot of messages from the Taliban oh, yeah. about Black Probably, stuff. right? <laughs> so I'm going to get some weird DMs again. But in Portland, we've got a uh, two trade show things going on right now. One's called uh, Lens Summit at the Kerner Camera System. So I'll be hanging out there if you want to find me. It's just a whole bunch of lens manufacturers coming out and showing off cool glass and things. Awesome. And then Mini Gear at a place called Gearhead, which is sort of like a miniature cine gear. I'll be there demoing some Nanlite, you know, super slow-mo stuff. And my buddy, Daniel from Via, he'll be there. We'll have the arm car out and we'll just be hanging out, being nerds. So definitely those things. And then we're going to Chicago on a crazy van trip. So that's gnarly. Yeah, that's like a six-day trip in the car, just filming stuff. So that should be really, really fun. Oh, man. Well, and and I I did lie. There actually is one more final question and arguably the most important, which is why did you choose water.org as your nonprofit? Did you have any particular affiliation with it or you just felt that it was something that needed more attention? Yeah, I don't have any like specific affiliation with it. It's something that I've followed for a while, you know, that I'm a big fan of because I mean, people need water to live. You know, that's one of the most important things, you know, food and water are sort of like, obviously you have to have them to survive. And it's kind of hard to do anything else when you're like thirsty and you're starving, you know, and you can't have access to water. I mean, how are you supposed to like take the time to actually like work on a film career when you, when you have to spend like six hours a day getting water or something mm-hmm. like that. So I just think like basic necessities like that are super important. There's obviously tons of important things out there, but you know, that's an important one for me. Wow. Well, well, Chris, thank you so much for being on. It's been such a pleasure getting to speak with you and thank you to our incredible audience for tuning in to contact Chris. You can always DM him on Instagram at his handle, Chris VTV. Chris, thank you so much. Heck yeah. Thanks guys for having me. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to the Film Up podcast. I'm your host, Christina. And I'm Arye. Stay tuned for our next episode dropping every Tuesday. Till next time.